0: Great. I wonder if you've ever heard anyone say that they were humbled by something. When people say that, what they often mean is they've got a glimpse of their own smallness in light of something far bigger. So it might be the Grand Canyon or the Great Barrier Reef, or maybe an amazing clear night of stars. I was once humbled by the cobbled streets of Rome. Picture of a scene, 19 19 years old, first ever marathon. And I was... (laughs) A cr- and I was, a, I was a very cocky 19-year-old teenager, and I thought, I don't need to train much for this. I'll be fine. I think I did about four runs in preparation for the marathon. And there I was, under the Coliseum, ready to go with the rest of the runners. And the gun goes off, and I was absolutely buzzing. I was on cloud nine, running along, high-fiving strangers, <laughs> running backwards, jump, jumping up, slapping the road signs above my head, absolutely loving it first five miles were good, on, on for about three, three and a half hours, feeling good. But then as the miles went on, began to suffer, began to struggle. And around about mile 19, the road went out of the city and up a long grinding hill. And it was it a was hot day, it was about 25 degrees. And as I was running up that hill, I felt just an explosion of pain in my calf muscles, cr- cramp. If you've ever had it before, cramp, terrible. Both my calves, boom, seized up like someone had shot me in the back of the legs. And I had to slow to a walk. And I tried to stretch out, tried to carry on, but I couldn't. My legs were totally shot. And I had to hobble the last seven miles. And it was the longest seven miles of my entire life, honestly. Just hobbling, just trying to put one foot in front of the other to get to the end. And when I got to the finish line, just collapsed in tears. Just out of relief and pain, just, wow, thank you that it's over. So I was humbled that day. I got a sense of my own ability, uh, And my sense of self was uh, much more realistic as I flew back um, home from Rome. So today, as we look at Daniel chapter 4, we're going to see the humbling of a king. And not just any old king, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, pretty much the most powerful man in the world at that time. So Debs, my wife, um, is going to come and read the passage for us. It's quite a long one. It's going to come up on the screen. Um, So if you've got a Bible, then do get it out. Uh, if you want to follow it on the screen, then do that as well. So, have a seat
1: Okay, it's quite long. Ready? <laughs> okay. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. That's the first bit. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, "O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. Mm. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed and behold, a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth. Found with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven, let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth, let his mind be changed from a man's, and let, let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves are beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O King, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender glass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the most high, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Hmm. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honoured him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does nothing according to his will amongst the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay in his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble.
0: Thanks, love. So this is a fascinating chapter, chapter four of Daniel, um, and it's an autobiographical, uh, autobiographical account. So it's written by Nebuchadnezzar himself, and it documents this amazing journey from being a proud idolatrous king to a humble king who worshipped the one true God. Nebuchadnezzar learns three lessons throughout the passage. First lesson he learns is that God rules everything. Second lesson he learns is that God humbles the proud. And the third lesson he learns is that God lifts up the humble. So we're just going to unpack these three points and just have a look at each of uh, of them in a bit more depth. So the first one, Nebuchadnezzar learned that God rules everything. Now before he learned this, he was a polytheist, which means he would have worshipped loads of different gods. Have a look at verse 8, if you've got your Bible in front of you. It says, Daniel came in before me, he was named Belteshazzar after after the name of my God. So the the, Daniel's Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, meant may Bel protect him. And Bel was the patron god of the city of Babylon. But he was only one of 15 major deities and over 100 minor deities that he would have worshipped, Nebuchadnezzar would have worshipped. So he had Ishtar, who was the goddess of love, Tammuz, the goddess of food, and Asher, the god of the wind. But they were just you know, one of you know, hundreds of other gods that he would have had. And in chapter 3... Nebuchadnezzar come face to face with Daniel's God, with the God of the Bible. And he saw him do a miraculous thing where he saved three men from a burning, fiery furnace. And he even goes as far as saying this in chapters, chapter 3, verse 29. He says, There is no other God that can rescue you like this. So Nebuchadnezzar's on a journey. He's seen something of the God of the Bible, but yet he's still a polytheist. He still has lots of different gods that he worships. On top of that, Nebuchadnezzar was in danger of taking on godlike status himself. It doesn't take a genius to work out that in chapter three, the massive golden statue that he made the people bow down and worship—it was really just a, a big idol of himself. He gives it away when he says to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, "Which god is going to rescue you out of my hands?" He was elevating himself to godlike status. So God knew that it would have taken more than just a miraculous saving from a furnace to turn Nebuchadnezzar away from his false god so he would worship him alone, the one true God. So God brings this dream upon him and it all comes to pass. And it's so that Nebuchadnezzar would hear this loud and clear. Look at these three verses. So verses 17, 25, and 32. They all say pretty much the same thing. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So this is what God wants Nebuchadnezzar to hear loud and clear. There is a sovereign God. There is a God who rules everything. There's a God who's made the heavens and the earth. And he is the only true God. Now, what did this mean for Nebuchadnezzar? Well, two things. The first one would be that he would have had to lay aside his false gods. Having understood this truth, he could no longer worship this pantheon of gods. He couldn't worship the God of love, or the God of food, or the God of wind. Because the most high God was God of all these things. He'd created everything. There is no other gods at all. He would have had to admit that these idols were merely just a figment of human imagination, and just built with human hands. And the second thing that Nebuchadnezzar would have learned, and he would have had to put into practice, would it would have changed how he ruled. See, before he learned this lesson... Nebuchadnezzar just ruled Babylon like it was his own. He thought he was the boss of Babylon. I've risen to the top. I'm the king. I'm the most powerful man in the world. I can do whatever I want. And we look in verse 27 at Daniel's warning, and we see that that had turned Nebuchadnezzar into an immoral king and an oppressive king. Ruling things his own way had meant misery for the people around him and immorality for his own life. But then we see, uh, right at the end, in verse 37, he says this, Now I, and Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. So he's seen something of the justice and the goodness of God, and he's seen how God rules, and the justice and goodness that God rules with. And that would have totally radically changed the way he would have ruled over his kingdom. He couldn't be immoral anymore. He couldn't oppress people anymore. He had to rule in a godly way. Because, here's the thing, it was all a gift, Nebuchadnezzar was only in the position of power because God had given him that. Freely given it him. He'd not done anything to deserve it. He'd been given it by God to steward over. And it would have radically changed how he would have ruled. Now as we reflect on this first lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned, how does it apply to us? Well, in essence, we've all been given a Babylon. We've all been given something to steward by God. It might not look as impressive as a whole kingdom like Babylon, but God's given you gifts, talents, skills... He's given you maybe a family. He's given you a career. He's given you all these things to rule over. And the question is, do we see these things as gods for us to steward carefully and wisely? Or do we fundamentally view them as ourselves? I chatted to my GC about this. And um, I was asking him, what are some of the things that you struggle to give to God? What are some of the things that you hold back for yourself? And these were a few of the things that came up. So just as you look at that, ask yourself this question. Are these things fundamentally gods? That you steward or are they yours? Let me just give you a personal example. For me, time was something that I think a few years ago, I, I, I viewed it as my own. So any sort of free time I got, it was all about how can I use it for my own fun and how can I use it to relax and unwind. And for me, that meant doing pretty much everything adventurous under the sun. So going out climbing, mountain biking, wild swimming, anything that I could do that that brought me that rush. And hear this, There's nothing wrong with those things at all, but it was the attitude I had towards my time. I looked at my diary and I thought, how can I use my free time to best serve my needs? But slowly and you know, over time, and I'm obviously still on a journey here, God's been trying to show me, look, Frank, your diary is mine. I rule over your time. And I've given you this time on this earth, this precious time, this seventy eight years if I'm lucky. I've given you this to steward over it. And it really matters how I spend that time. So think about food bank, for example. It's on a Saturday morning. That used to be prime time, all right? That used to be when I would be out doing whatever I wanted to do and just doing things my own way. And again, hear this. There's nothing wrong with doing that every now and again on a Saturday morning. But before, I'd looked at food bank and gone, I don't want to do that. I'd far rather be doing what I want to do with my own time. But now, hopefully, when I see an opportunity to serve like that, I think, do you know what? It's not my time this Saturday morning. It's God's time. Can I go and serve? Can I go and get involved? Can I go and get alongside God's people serving the needs of the poor? Can I throw myself behind this great thing? So that's one example. And I think maybe this is something that you can go through with people that you know and trust. Maybe in your GCs or your running partners. And try and think about the things that God's entrusted to you and how you view these things. So that was the first lesson Nebuchadnezzar learned. The second lesson he learned is that God humbles the proud. See, Nebuchadnezzar's pride was ultimately his downfall. Come with me in your minds to verse 28, when Nebuchadnezzar's on the roof of his palace. He would have looked out over this incredible city, and he would have seen these ornate temples gleaming in the sunlight, beautifully made. He'd see the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world. He'd see the ziggurat, this kind of shrine that was said to pierce the heavens. And he'd see the outer wall of the city so wide and so big that four horse chariots could pass each other on the top. And as he looked out over them all, he says these fateful words. Is not this great Babylon which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? See, there was nothing wrong with the splendor of Babylon. Nothing wrong with the beauty, nothing wrong with the artistry, nothing wrong with the architecture. God was, God's the creator of all these things. He loves these things. But it was the attitude which really was the problem. He was saying, look at all this and give me the glory. Look at all this around you and look at how great I am. It's not, easy, it's not, easy to, sorry, it's not difficult to see why God was so opposed to this. In Isaiah 43 verse 7, God says, I created you for my glory. God created us for his glory. He created us to look around at the beauty and look around at the splendor of the earth and go, isn't God incredible? Isn't, isn't God an amazing God? We're meant to give God glory. But can you see Nebuchadnezzar points all the glory to himself? And don't we see this all around us still? If you're watching the Euros, you might have seen players who... The ball's gone through 11 different players. Someone's tapped it in, and they run over to the crowd... And they point at their back and say, look at my name. It's a team sport. There's 11 different, well, 10 other players on the pitch. All they've done is put it in and they're saying, look at me, aren't I brilliant. We see it in the city around us as well, London. How many times have you heard someone say, isn't London the greatest city on earth? They look at the architecture, they look at the, the history, they look at the, uh, you know, the, the, the cultural diversity, they look at the opportunity and they say, Not just, you know, this, this is a great city. They say, this is the great city of the earth. We see it politically as well. My Facebook and Twitter was awash around the referendum with pride. People saying, I voted right. Look at all those idiots who voted wrong. I'm more educated than these people. I'm more informed than these people. Looking down on other people. And see, in Nebuchadnezzar, we get a window into the fundamental problem of the human heart. Here's what C.S. Lewis says in his famous chapter on pride in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, Pride is the essential vice and the utmost evil. Anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It is through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is a completely anti-God state of mind. He goes on, pride has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. Pride was what drove a wedge between God and the first human beings. Look at the Garden of Eden. Look at the story in in Genesis. Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And what they're essentially doing is saying, we want to be God. That's the lie that they believe from the devil. They eat the fruit because they want to be God. They don't want to be dependent on God anymore. They don't want to need God for anything anymore. They want to rule their own lives. Pride drives the wedge between people as well. Again, Lewis says this brilliantly. He says, pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more than the next man. We see that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. So it's a serious problem, a, a, a drastic problem. And the thing is, it's so easy to spot in other people so quick to spot it in others, and yet it's so, so hard to see it in our own lives. So true, isn't it? You might even be sitting there thinking, oh, I'm, not, I'm not that proud. And, and if I am proud, well, I'm not as proud as that other person. <laughs> but see, pride is that secret secret sin. It, 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 it lurks under the surface, and the devil loves it when we don't realize how proud we really are. Again, As I was trying to sort of get under the surface of this, I asked some of um, the guys in my GC, what are some of the areas that you sometimes see pride sort of bubbling to the surface? And out of their responses, I came up with a few questions, which hopefully, if if you ask yourself honestly, you can maybe get at where pride might be lurking. So first question is, in conversations, do you talk more than you listen? Question two, can you accept help from people? Or do you have to always do everything yourself? How do you react when other people get the credit for the good job that you've done? Do you find yourself comparing yourself to others, looking down on other people, thinking you're better than others? And lastly, are you striving for God's glory or are you striving for your own glory? I'm sure there's other questions that you could ask. It's not an exhaustive list. But again... Get with people that you know and love. Try and get under the surface. Because pride is lurking in the heart of every single one of us, if we're really honest. And it's so important that we get down, get under the surface, and try and root it out. So pride's a drastic problem, and it needed a drastic solution for Nebuchadnezzar. God dealt Nebuchadnezzar this harsh blow. He consigned him to seven years of life as a wild animal, eating grass and being drenched with rain every day for seven years. Here's a famous painting. It should come up. Two slides. Here it is. So This is a famous painting by William Blake which depicts Nebuchadnezzar in this horrible animal-like state. Some people said it was boanthropy, which is a very rare mental condition where the sufferer believes himself to be a cow or an ox and acts like one. Some say it might have been lycanthropy, which is another rare mental illness where the sufferer acts like a wolf. Whatever it was, it was a very harsh blow and it was a difficult Difficult seven years for Nebuchadnezzar. But it's really important that we realize that God loves Nebuchadnezzar. He really does. Absolutely loves this king. And he didn't want to see him suffer at all. Did you see in the passage, he gave him 12 months to repent. He gave him a whole year to turn away from his pride and live differently. He gave him that time to respond. But when he saw that he wasn't going to lay aside his own pride, God said, you know what? I'm going to have to bring something upon this man. I'm going to have to humble him. And not just so that he could see Nebuchadnezzar humiliated, but so he could raise him up again and exalt him. And this leads us on to the final lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned. He learned that God lifts up the humble. So we see at the end of the seven years, Nebuchadnezzar's human mind comes back to him and he looks up to heaven and he gives God the glory and he says, God's the eternal one. God is the king of all the earth. And he's able to humble the, pr- the proud. See, he'd learnt this difficult lesson, but he was no longer a proud man. His heart had been softened. He was now a humble man before God. And at the end of the story, it ends on such a high note, doesn't it? God takes him and he puts him back in power again. And he gives him more than he ever had before. So out of that humble state, he puts him back and he's in a position that he never could have dreamed he was in before. So this is the pattern. It's so important that we realize that when God humbles, he does it so that he can exalt. He always does it to lift us up again. So that was the pattern. That was the solution to Nebuchadnezzar's pride. Obviously, this is a very, very uh, rare thing. And we shouldn't expect that we're going to go out and you know, eat grass and hamster teeth uh, to, to sort out our pride. So what's the answer to our pride? What's the answer to to the pride of the world. Well, there was a king, the king of kings, in fact, whose ultimate humbling and exaltation is the ultimate answer to our pride. In Philippians 2, we read this. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, See, the death and resurrection of Jesus both humbles us and exalts us at the same time. It humbles us because we see that we were that sinful, that needy, that desperate, that short of anything good in ourselves, that it took the, the, the son of the almighty God, Jesus Christ himself, to leave all of his glory in heaven, to lay it all aside, and to come down to earth and live a life of a man. The Bible said that he had no beauty to attract us to him. He really did step right down and he was spat at, he was mocked, he was beaten. He carried the beam of the wooden cross up onto that hill and he died that horrendous criminal's death. He couldn't have humbled himself anymore. He died a slave's death. The king of glory, the king of heaven, died a slave's death for you and I. And when we come to that, we can't help but fall on our knees and say, God, I need saving so much. That's how much I need you. But in the very same moment, God exalted Jesus. Three days later, we read that he he rose him to new life, and he placed him in the highest place, in a place where everyone will look and say, he's the one. He's the king. He's the king of of the heavens. Every knee will bow before Jesus in his exalted glory. And in the same way, if we Come to the cross, if we come to God on our knees and say, Lord, I need you so much, I need forgiving, I need you to forgive me, then he will raise us to our feet again. He'll take us from our knees and he'll lift us to the stars. It says in the Bible that he is seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. He takes us from our knees and he lifts us to the heavenly places. We're found in Christ. Tim Keller sums it up beautifully. He says, We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we ever dared hope. When we truly get the gospel, when we truly see just how much God did for us, how far he went, how much he humbled ourselves, it's only going to melt our hearts and lead to true humility. And when we're truly humble, it really will affect every aspect of our lives. Let me just give you four examples of how true gospel humility will look in our lives. So firstly, when we're truly humble, we will use our gifts for God's glory. So think about what you're good at. Think about the things that God's given to you. True humility says, God, thank you so much for the gifts you've given me. I don't deserve these gifts. I didn't, haven't done anything special to earn these gifts. They're all freely given by you. And I want to use them for your glory. I want people to see me and see the way I live and point to you. Not, not to me. The glory goes to you. Secondly, we don't compare ourselves to others. So as soon as we find ourselves looking down on other people, we've slipped back into pride. Because Jumba, pride is competitive. It's always trying to outdo the next person. And it's really, really important that we realise that humility isn't the opposite of that. So looking around and saying, "Oh, woe is me! I'm, I'm rubbish. You know, everyone else is better than me. I've done a really bad job." That's that's not what it is, because that's equally self-centred. It's self-centred, self-loathing. You're still putting all the all the focus on yourself. You're saying, "Oh, I look rubbish in comparison to that person." True gospel humility doesn't think about yourself at all. True gospel humility isn't thinking less about yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. A friend of mine called Steve once met a famous preacher called John Stott. Some of you might have heard of him. And he chatted to him for two hours. And I said, oh, what was it like? And he said, do you know what? For that entire two hours, all he did was ask me questions. And it was like I was the most important man in the room. He didn't talk about himself, even though he'd preached the gospel to millions, had some books that have been some of the the greatest books written in the last 100 years. All the focus was on my friend Steve. That's true gospel humility. John Stott wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking, how can I serve this young man, this, this young minister of the gospel? How can I help this man and build him up and point him to Christ? Thirdly, gospel humility means we can rejoice when people go well and we can support those who fail i don't know about you but sometimes when i see someone do something great and they get credit for it part of me is like slightly gutted it's really embarrassing to say but part of me is like oh that means that they look better than me or you know they you know that means other people look at them better it's an awful ugly thing to to realize and sometimes when people fail we can be like oh great it gives me a chance to look better our media does this all the time, don't they? When someone fails, they're so quick to jump in on the back and, and let everyone know how much of a failure they are. But if we're truly humble, then when we see someone who's done a better job than us, we you know, we thank God. We we get alongside them and we say, Well done, it's so great to see you doing so well. Because here's the thing they can only do the good thing that they've done with God's strength and with God's help, and that means whatever we've been given, you know, we we've been freely given by God too. So we can't compare because they've been given something freely by God, we've been given something freely by God. And when someone fails, let's get alongside people. Let's get alongside them and and try and encourage them and and help them to see how God's going to exalt them. How God's going to use that failure to lift them up. Because we know that sooner or later we're going to fail. We're going to struggle. And we want someone to put their arm around us as well and point us to God. And lastly, Truly gospel, so, sorry, true gospel humility means you can take failure. So when you fail at something, you're not completely devastated, you're not completely crushed. Because if that's the case, probably let pride creep in again. Because you've had a dint in your reputation. And a dint and a in your pride is the worst thing for a proud person. But when we fail, let's be asking God, how are you going to use this, God? I've I've read it in your word that you exalt those who humble themselves. How can I let this failure soften me? How can I let this failure draw me to my knees again before you, telling you that I I need you? How can we let it make us more patient and more able to draw alongside other people when they're struggling as well? So as I finish, I just want to speak to anyone in the room who wouldn't say they're a Christian at this moment in time. I just want to really gently and as lovingly as I can, just urge you to respond to this message today. See, God loves you so much. And he knows that if you go on in your pride, it's a miserable existence, always comparing yourself, always striving, never satisfied. He wants you to humble yourself before him. He wants you to fall to your knees and say, God, I need you so much. I need your salvation. I need to be forgiven. Thank you that you sent your one and only son to step down and humble himself for me. Thank you that you've done that so that you can exalt me, so that you can place me on the firm foundation of Christ. Take this opportunity today to do that. And if you do, if you humble yourself before God, then he will exalt you. He'll lift you up and he'll give you a new life. He'll adopt you into his family. He'll give you an amazing inheritance and he'll help you to live a truly humble life as you go forward. So as I finish... I'd love it if we could all kneel together. If you've got any reason why you can't kneel, that's absolutely fine. Maybe bow your heads. But I just invite you all to do that now. If you've got space, why don't we just kneel before God? See, kneeling is a, like a physical demonstration of, uh, of our humility before God. It's a, way of, it's a way of saying, look God, I'm coming here totally empty-handed. I'm coming before you with, with nothing to offer. I'm calling out on your grace. I'm calling out on you to exalt me and lift me up. So as we kneel together, why not I just quickly pray as I finish and then we'll, then we'll sing um, some more songs to our amazing God. Lord, we just come before you on our knees and just physically we want to just demonstrate um, that we have nothing in and of ourselves to bring to the table, that we're so empty-handed uh, Lord, that we are so desperately in need of you every day. Lord, thank you that you loved us enough to humble yourself, to step down from heaven where you had everything and became nothing, just gave up everything for us. Thank you that you went to that cross, that you humbled yourself enough to die a criminal's death on our behalf. Thank you, Lord. And thank you that when you humble us, you exalt us. When we come before you like this, we can trust that you'll raise us to the heavens. You'll. Lift our eyes and show us how much we're loved and cherished and accepted and adopted into your family. Thank you for all the amazing things that you do for us as soon as we um, call out our need for you. So I just thank you, Lord, for, for, this, um, yeah, for this amazing um, message that you've communicated to us through this chapter in Daniel, Lord. Just thank you that you love us that much, that, that you, yeah, you want to uh, humble us so that you can exalt us. I just pray for everyone here, Father. I just pray that you'd be at work now. Just put your finger on areas where we're still uh, ruling over our own, our own lives and we're still thinking about things as our own. Just help us to give everything to you, to give up everything we have to you, to commit it all into your hands. And help us to, um, yeah, to look at the areas where um, we need to humble ourselves before you and turn away from our pride. I just pray that uh, for everyone here, Lord, in your wonderful name. Amen.